0: Hello and welcome to the Categorically Romance Podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Bree. And today we have returning to us one of our favorite guests, Anna J. Stewart. Thank you for joining us again. How are you?
1: I'm great. How are you guys? Third time's a charm. Yay. Welcome back.
0: <laughs> Thank you. We love having you on.
1: This is one of my favorite podcasts, so I'm thrilled to be here.
2: I mean, and listeners, we just have to admit, we literally talked for like 20 minutes before we even
1: <laughs> ever- <laughs> We did and we didn't exhaust everything. So, here we go.
0: Well, first of all, Anna, you have a new book coming out that you can that readers can pre-order right now. Can you tell us about all about the book?
1: I can. It's called Exposed. It's the first book in my new romantic suspense series, uh The Circle of the Red Lily. Um this is not a category romance. Uh and it is not sweet. It's quite a bit darker than anything else I've written to date um, lots of twists and turns. It's my, it's another one of my kitchen sink books where I have a lot of stuff in it, but essentially it's about a photographer who uncovers photographic evidence of a murder or a murder case. that's already been decided. It throws the case into question and, uh, puts her into the sights of a secret society. That's, more than a little desperate to stay hidden and a cop who's uh, determined to protect her, but also needs to uh, be very cautious because it could expose some issues within the LAPD and their connections to the same group. So it's super sexy, super fun, big cast of characters, first to five books, and it's discounted right now for pre-order at $2.99 on digital. It'll only be $9.99 for the paperback, which is awesome. My publisher was fabulous in getting that for me. And um, it'll go on sale November 15th. So I also call this my Women's Murder Club meets LA Confidential. So it's uh, it's just, it was so, so, so much fun to write. And I think it really shows on the page that I loved writing it. So hopefully readers will love it.
0: It is definitely dark. I started reading it yesterday and Ooh. boy, that prologue was just like, I'm like, what What am I reading? Anna, this is-
1: <laughs> <laughs> It is not a heartwarming. Not and it's funny because when I start writing a new project and I'm not really sure about it, I send it to um, Melinda Curtis and Carrie Lynn Webb because we've been critique partners for so long. And I sent it to them and Mel texts me back almost right away. And she goes, oh my God, this is so your voice. This is what you're supposed to be writing. It's so great. And Carrie texts and she goes, I can't read this anymore because you scared me. I'm going to have nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, Carrie. I'm like, no, that was like the perfect answer she could give me. Cause that's kind of that's exactly what you what wanted. Thinking. Yeah. So Carrie moved out of the critiquing frame and her daughter actually uh, moved in. So her daughter, uh, Hannah was uh, really helpful in helping me find that balance between the light and the dark. And uh, I just got a kick out of the fact that Carrie couldn't read it, but her daughter was good with it.
2: Okay. I just have to know, because I find... All of you writers of romantic suspense just fascinate the hell out of me. Like, what were you doing on a random day in life where this story came to you?
1: So uh, everybody who knows me knows I'm an utter TV junkie, complete TV junkie. And I watched TV series over and over and over again. One of my favorite go-to series is White Collar with uh, Matt Bomer and Tiffany Thiessen and uh, the late, wonderful um, Willie Garson. Oh, God, I miss that guy. He was so fun. Uh, but there was an episode in that show where um, uh, Willie Garson's character buys a an abandoned storage unit. And in the unit, there's a whole bunch of photography stuff. And as I'm watching this episode for probably like the fifth or sixth time, I'm like, well, what if there was film in there? I mean, he never finds any film, but he finds a bunch of different kinds of cameras and pictures and stuff, but no undeveloped film. And I went, what would happen if a photographer came across undeveloped film, developed it and found something that put their life into danger. And that's kind of where the idea came for that. And then I knew it wanted to be a, a large cast of characters because I always write a large cast of characters and I always have spin-off books, but really that's where the idea came from. And then when Arc Manor asked if I would write a book for them to launch their Kazak romance line, uh, my book will be the first book they've released. Uh, that's a single title. We've done a couple of anthologies, um, my editor said, What do you want to write? And I had that idea in my head. And I'm like, I've got this idea. What do you think of? And I wasn't two sentences into it. And she said, I want that book. Oh, and I wrote gosh. that book. And now it'll be five books. And the whole mystery part of it will be there'll be bits and pieces that get solved in each book. Each book will have its own hero and heroine. You meet all of the heroines in book one. You'll start to meet the rest of the heroes throughout the rest of the series. But there's an the overarching mystery will end at the end of book five. As of now, I think I know what the twist is at the end, but that could change because I don't plot. So who knows what's going to happen? It'll be fun.
0: You're uh, going to have us on the edge of our seat all the way through.
2: I hope so. So when you're writing romantic suspense does not plotting help? I mean, cause you're writing a mystery. So does that kind of keep the mystery going for you? Like, do you feel like if you it plotted it out, it would maybe be boring or something? I don't know if that makes sense.
1: No, it does. And um, for me, that's exactly why I don't plot is because if I know the story already, the writing isn't going to be as fresh. It's going to be, and then this happened and then this happened. It won't feel as, I don't know, organic maybe. And I remember uh, talking to a friend of mine, Allison Brennan, who writes amazing thrillers. And I remember her saying that she never knows who the bad guy is until the end of the book. Because if she knows, she's convinced somehow she's going to give it away in the story. And she always wants that that mystery to last until the absolute last possible moment. So I've always kind of kept that in mind. Um, with my romantic suspenses for uh, Harlequin, of course, I have to sell on proposals. So I have to write a synopsis that includes... The mystery aspect, and I'm actually dealing with this right now. I have to rewrite my latest proposal because I went, I didn't go deep enough into the details of the mystery part of or the suspense part of it. And I'm like, yeah, that's because I don't plot and I don't know the details yet. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I've written 25 books for you guys. You should know by now. I don't plot, so I don't have these answers. Um, But I have found that if I try to stick too tightly to the synopsis that I've written, I get blocked. I can't, I can't move through it. So I have finally just given myself permission to keep to the core conflict between the hero and the heroine and whatever happens to the rest of the story happens. If they kick the book back to me because they don't like it or because it's too far off. But by now I've kind of gotten into the habit of, I I understand what it is that they're looking for suspense wise and how far I can go with things. And when I have to pull back, Uh, the good thing about writing exposed was my editor at Kazak literally said, write what you want to write, however you want to write it, go for it. In a lot of ways, um, that felt so freeing because I can't, you know, I I tend to swear. You know, we talked about this before. I did 12 years in Catholic school. I know how to swear. Um I write about a lot of cops. Cops swear it's one of their pressure releases, but I can't put that into a harlequin. And I understand why. And that's totally that's totally fine. That's the agreement I made when I signed those contracts. So I understand the restrictions that I'm tied to. But when I don't have those restrictions, I, it, I don't recall having any horrible moments writing exposed. And I think that's because I didn't have to worry about whether or not what I was writing was appropriate to align. It was writing what was appropriate to the story. So I didn't really have to backtrack on that.
2: Yeah. Oh, man. As somebody that was, like I was uh, military law enforcement, we cuss a lot. Okay.
1: So Yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, and it's, I always find it funny that uh, whenever I've gotten pushbacks on any of my books, it's usually because of language. It's not because, you know, of violent explosions or attacks or, or uh, hotter sex scenes. It's language. Language <laughs> seems to be what will offend people the most. And I always find that very, very interesting. Don't stop me but I find it interesting.
0: Got too many F-bombs in there, but you know, ramp up the violence. That's okay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm so confused.
0: All right. Well, we brought you on to talk about bookselling. This is, I guess, adjacent to our Blaze project here. And so we want to tap into your expertise is when you were a bookseller, Mm -hmm. how did the high heat books in your shop sell? How did you go about buying them? Just tell us tell us all the things about high heat, and if you can talk specifically about Temptation, Blaze, or Dare, uh, please do.
1: Okay, so disclaimer: um, Yes, I worked at a bookstore. I worked at Walden Books, which tells you how long ago this was. Yeah, I it was about twenty a long years time. ago, <laughs> I and that's where I worked when I was in college. So. Um, I was a longtime customer of this particular store. That is no more. Uh, And uh, at least once a month when I was there, I would say, are you hiring? Are you hiring? Are you hiring? And they were never hiring. And then finally, I think they just got sick of me asking and they gave me an interview. Um... And in the interview, I remember the first thing the manager said to me. He says, "You do know that the bookstore is larger than the romance section, right?" And I went, "Oh, yeah, I I am aware. There are other... Oh, sure, there's other sections. Okay, whatever. (laughs) There are other sections. There there aren't any other sections I really care about, but yeah. Um, So I I always find that funny that he thought thought to ask me that. Um, So I, I was. I ran the cash register and I did the special orders and stuff. I never made my way up into management where it had the where I was in charge of the ordering or anything like that. Um, but at the time, I believe the temptation line was still going. The spicier there wasn't erotica at the time, at least not the erotica in the bookstore was in the fiction section under anonymous. That should tell you how long ago it was that oh I was my working. Gosh. On the book. That
0: is- that's yeah. fascinating <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: so um there were there the romance section it was it was pretty much because there also weren't a lot of sweet romances unless you were getting the regencies that were put out by signet i believe so um most of the romances that were on the shelf and there was a huge romance section in that store i made sure there was mainly because that was my section and i knew as a reader how voracious romance readers are, right? So um, I always made sure to work um, every Tuesday because Tuesday was when the romance shipment came in for the series romances and nobody shelved those except me. I was just understood when I started working there. Um, And the heat levels, I'm trying to think of the authors who, you know, that was... uh, Oh God, it's been so long since I've read historical romances, but historical romances are really, really big. Um, Fabio covers were really, really big at that time. Uh, Linda Kinsale was one of the authors I remember always, all of her titles are always in stock. This was at the time when the first J.D. Robb books were coming out because I remember looking at the Naked in Death cover for weeks before I finally picked it up because I had no idea Nora Roberts wrote it. Wow, those first couple of books, they didn't say that it was Nora Roberts. It was a new pen name. Uh, and then as soon as I read it and I started doing a little bit more research, I made the connection, of course. And now those are the books that I read almost the day they come out. But um, so as far as the spice level, you know, we had a really good romance customer base and they were buying pretty spite. I mean, but like I said, we didn't have the erotica or the... Um, the super spicy books that are available now. And, but I think if we had, I think the sales would have been great uh, just because, you know, it's, it's, it's some, it would, it would have been something different. So I don't know whether or not um, I'm the right person to talk about the, the book sales part of it, because I didn't really care about how that part of the store operated. You know, I just wanted to spend my time in the, in the romance section and um, recommend books. Um, And it's fun to work in a bookstore because sometimes you get the questions like, I'm looking for a book. I don't know who wrote it. The cover is red. Great. Love that.
2: I, which now, I mean, at the time, Temptation. I mean,
1: they right? were kind of yeah. had that
2: red vibe going on. So,
1: And of course, there are other sections in the bookstore other than romance. So right, I'm like, you know, no. <laughs> I, don't know. For, I did actually get it right one time, which was hysterical. And it was a Michael Crichton novel. I think it was Rising Sun. And I just took a shot and thought if that was it. And it was. And I'm like, OK, I'm never going to be able to do that again in my entire life. <laughs> but um, yeah, so as far as... Uh, Customer shopping preferences. I think at the time, if there had book been spicier books available, they would have been selling just fine, if not better than the historicals that were really, uh, really, really popular.
2: So this is even before like paranormal was a was yeah. was big. Wow. Yeah,
1: yeah. I um I'm trying to think. Yeah, because it was before the Silhouette Shadows line. Um, because I don't think those were in the store until after i wasn't there anymore i don't remember mm-hmm. i don't remember the years that the silhouette shadows were i could be completely wrong on that it's been twenty twenty five years
2: yeah shadows was like the like 90s i think
1: okay so yeah that would have been about the time i was working there because i was in college from 89 to phew, a lot really long time um but yeah, Which I know would, you loved
2: that line. And I, I actually read this blog post some months ago, and this this blogger was like, they actually think that that line was ahead of its time, and that's why it didn't last. So I was like, oh, yeah. and I love this line.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think if they had kept it going, um, I think they would have written out the difficult parts, and it would probably be one of Harlequin's premier lines if they had kept it going. But, you know, being ahead of your time sometimes can be a real pain in the butt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay, okay, I have to know just for gee whiz. Tell us about that part
2: of book selling that nobody likes to think about, but like with the paperbacks that don't oh, sell, the ripping off of the cover. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it because I've been <sighs> seeing it more and more lately. I have literally went to Walmart at six in the morning and seen an entire buggy with mm-hmm. ripped off covers, and I went to a Walmart and they had them still stacked on the shelf. Um, yeah kind of on top of each other with their covers ripped off I guess waiting for the vendor or somebody to come pick them up and I was like what is this why can't we donate these to shelters or rest homes like can you tell us about that so just people know
1: I can and I think you posted about that on Twitter because I think I responded to it yeah (laughs) yeah. I was was an uproar (laughs) yeah I I
2: remember Aaron messaged me he's like uh what did you do (laughs) you kind of caused an
1: uproar (laughs) It's um, it's funny that you ask about that because I remember I think it was after my first week I'd been working there, and I worked there for seven or eight years. Uh, my manager pulled me back into the back room, and that's where all the romances were lined up. And he says, "I want a picture of you doing this."
2: Oh no! I said, "Doing
1: what?" And he says, "You got to rip off all the covers and throw the rest of the book away." And I'm like, "Are you? Why would I do that? <laughs> why would anybody <laughs> rip a cover off a book?" And he says, "Because the covers get sent back to the publishers." as unsold stock so that it essentially credits back to the bookstore or the company or blah 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 i don't really care you shouldn't be ripping covers off books i get why you have to um but at the same time oh and then we would have to box up the torn up books tape up the box with duct tape and throw it away and there were uh, there was usually one or two of us around when we were doing it so that there was like a witness but i will fully admit to uh take that's how i got a lot of my books at least the ones I didn't spend my entire paycheck buying. Um, You know, if there was an author I wasn't sure about, or I wanted to try out a different kind of a different genre or whatever, I'm not afraid to admit it. I took some of those books home. I, I got of would a cover on them. gladly take some of those books. home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, legally, should I have? No, because Probably they've been not. reported as unsold to the publisher, but at the same time, you know, it, uh, there's gotta be a better way. And I guess there is now because everything's digital, but now you got people who are trying to return digital books. So um, it just, yeah. So it's a painful process. Uh, So you rip off the cover and then you, we put the, usually what they had us do is rip the rest of the book in half. Oh my gosh. And split it between two boxes. Um, So we would fill up the boxes, duct tape the boxes, take them out to the trash behind the store. um, And then the covers uh, get... packaged up and sent back to a distribution center that then sorts out those covers and then takes them off to whatever publisher uh, for the company to get their reimbursement back as far as the, the books that they bought and then didn't sell. So this is what... Yeah. They did the same thing with magazines too. It wasn't just paperbacks. It also It's also with magazines.
2: Like magazines. I didn't yeah. know that.
1: Which really hurts because when you think about how much it costs for, especially for smaller presses to publish a magazine, all that paper... <laughs>
0: you know right. the rip off the cover.
1: yeah yeah it's it's just it's it's painful um i have no idea whether anybody working in a bookstore it, i'm I, it has to be the same kind of process but also bookstores don't get in the same amount of stock that they used to you know when i was working at the bookstore we got in anywhere from 10 to 15 boxes of harlequins because there were at the time i think there were 10 series and five of the series came out One Tuesday a month and five of the series came out two Tuesdays later. So there was always almost like a rotation going on. And we got anywhere from 10 to 15 copies of each book in each series.
2: Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. You would never see that now.
1: Never see that now. I mean, I go to Barnes & Noble now to look for my own books and i'm lucky if there's two on the shelf two copies um and i'm sure that's because most people are getting serious romances in print or hopefully maybe they're ordering them from harlequin.com which you can do and if you order from harlequin.com you tend to get them a month earlier than they're actually available through anywhere else this is true i placed my order today just saying there um but um yeah it, it was a completely different time completely different time. And also bookstores, You know, um, my manager was really good about, hey, I've, he- I've heard about this book. Can we order some in just to see how it does? And he'd go ahead and order them or whatever. So it, it was a lot easier to stock a bookstore, I think, 20 years ago than it is now, because now they have to be so careful about what they're spending their money on, because chances are once it hits the store, it's not going anywhere and they have to be willing to give it the shelf space.
2: Oh my gosh, shelf space in the bookstore. The last time that I went to Barnes and Noble,
1: I think it was a week ago.
2: And I went to one that is a little bit farther out from my house. So, I was like just over there and I was like, "Let me check this out." There is th- there's a particular author who had four entire sections of uh, two shelves, Ugh. one mm. table, two shelves and two tables full of her books. And I'm like, This is why when I come in here looking for other specific books, I can't find them Mm -hmm. because we're giving so much shelf space to this author. And the, the bookseller, I actually asked, I was like, why, why is this person getting so much shelf space? And he's like, because we know we're going to sell these books. Yeah. And it was a release day for that author. And he's like, we know today's going to be a big day for us. And this, this Barnes and Noble is actually pretty close to um, University of Texas at San Antonio. So it's like really close to this like college area. And I was like, I get it. I get it. But it's still like, it's so sad. <laughs> Yeah. I was looking for specific. The category section at that particular store was so small, mm-hmm. and I was just like walking around looking for other single titles. And I'm like, "But you don't have this person's book. You don't have this person's book." But like, they know for that author, it's going to sell, so that they that like they justify having those four shelves of shelf space. Oh yeah, and that's they, just mind boggling.
1: It is. They have to map out. Like you said, it's, it's, it has to be guaranteed sales. And I find that so ironic because a lot of times when you're an author looking for a publisher, a publisher is only going to buy you if they know that it's has a chance of selling. And if it's a guaranteed sell, no problem, but, uh, they have to weigh the pros and cons as far as how much an investment you are, just like bookstores have to weigh the pros and cons of an investment of space.
2: Well, I'm also jealous that you can go to Barnes & Noble and find Heartwarming, because I can- I never saw uh-uh. Heartwarming at Barnes & Noble.
1: No, I'm sorry. I was referring to my romantic suspense. I've never seen a Heartwarming at Barnes & oh, Noble. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I was about to say, what? <laughs> nope. In fact- when management I- do I need to talk to? <laughs> yeah, I wish. I would love for the Heartwarming line to be available uh, in stores, and who knows, Maybe one day my wish will come true. But no, I think I've only seen one of my heartwarmings on a shelf at Walmart. And that was my very first book. And it was when they were doing a test run for Walmart to see if it would work. So Bad Boy of Butterfly Harbor, and I think Recipe for Redemption might have made it in. But I never found a Walmart near me that had um had the second book. And I th- took a picture of me with the first book, but now I'm trying to remember if, if I actually brought the book with me or if it was there, but I think it was there, but
2: yeah. So can you explain the whole vendor situation? Like, so a store gets the books delivered from a vendor. Do they like purchase those
1: books through the vendor? As far as I know, that's how it works. Um, I know, um, I think Walmart in particular, most bookstores will order through Ingram, which is a distribution house for printed books. This I have this I actually can speak of right now because my small press published uh, ha- is distributing my book Exposed through Ingram. Uh, and a lot of self-published authors now, I think, have the option of doing that as well. So Ingram is a big publisher. There's also Baker and Taylor, I think, is the other one. That might be dating myself back to the bookstore. I've not kept up with this part of things. But I believe stores like um Walmart uh, enter into deals a deal with harlequin as to what is going to be available in their stores i think that's how it worked works so um i i think in s- with some uh, retail outlets it's done through ingram and then the bookstore decides what it's going to order and then the publisher supplies ingram um and if i'm right on, if i'm wrong on this and i could very well be total disclaimer I'm not business-minded. This is why I'm not self-published, that the Walmart aspect and Target aspect are separate deals made between the stores and the publisher.
2: Wow. Okay. Because the
1: issue that I was
2: running into, which I, I think that it's gotten better, but I think it was what, like... August or something when I made the initial post on Twitter was like I had my Walmart had ha- not had any new categories since May. Mm. And it was cool because I was like, OK, well, the May releases are getting a lot more shelf time. But I was like, are they I because I messaged Aaron about it. He's like, well, do you think they're going to like put all these months in between out on the shelf at once? Like we doubt it. And yeah. they didn't do that. So it's like those months never got any shelf space.
1: Well, keep in mind also that we've been dealing with a paper shortage. That too, Uh, So publishers ran into a really, really big problem being able to get the supplies that they needed in order to keep up the print runs that they have. I know my small press publisher uh, ran into having to push back release dates because they weren't able to find a printer who could get the supplies that he needed to print off the books. Um, I was really lucky that my my release date stayed the same, but a lot of because uh, they also published science fiction and fantasy, and a lot of their books got pushed out. Um, I know that Harlequin was getting a jump start on the issue, they saw it coming, um, or at least in the way that things happened with COVID and everything, you know, when the world was starting to wake back up after having been in lockdown and realized that there was going to be this issue, they started uh, sending in books sooner than they needed because they wanted to be able to be sure that they could get those print runs accomplished in a reasonable amount of time. And if the books were sitting around longer, that was fine, but they didn't want to run into the situation of not having enough uh, to fill the orders that they had. So chances are you, might have been experiencing that, that printing issue that was going on. And um, there were a couple of months where um, between shipping issues and paper issues and printing issues, that it just created a perfect storm of no books.
2: No books. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I don't feel so, so bad about it now.
1: (laughs) I was angry. (laughs) No. Yeah. And I I will say Harlequin was really great about communicating to the authors the fact that this was happening. And they were saying, you know, um, we know you all are on your own schedules, but if your editor comes to you and says, we need you to bump up your due date or turn this book in early, it's only because we're trying to make sure that your book actually gets released when it's supposed to get released. Um, Thank God I never had to do that because- These days I am writing right up until the day my books are due, but, uh, they did give us that warning and I know that they, they're kind of still a little bit ahead of the game because I've already done the, uh, what's called the art fact sheet for a heartwarming of mine that comes out next August, I think, almost almost a year out, um, Fortunately, I happen to be writing that particular book right now, so it wasn't too much of a problem to do it. But um, I've actually started as soon as I turn a book in, I do the art fact sheet mainly because the story's still in my head. But um, I think that is one thing that they might continue doing is is getting all of the material that they need to create the covers into the system so that then they do have the opportunity to hit print and to get the file sent off to where they have to go that they've already got it and it's not like a a crammed rush
2: I have to ask a question kind of going back to our 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 heat conversation so okay. you do both you write wonderful sweet romances and you also know how to amp up the steam when you're writing i mean because I mean, Aaron and I both, we we love sweet romances, right? I got my start reading sweet romances, so I'll always, always love sweet romances. And sweet romances can actually get kind of hot, you know? (laughs) I guess kind of like in defense of sweet romance. Like, do you find writing romance that doesn't have the steam I mean, I, but I, I think like the emotional part of it comes into play and you always have like those little subtle moments that are like, oh, that's kind of, that's kind of hot. Mm -hmm. Is it more difficult as a writer? Like, which one do you find like as creatively is, is, is more of a challenge for you? Is it, is, is writing steam easier?
1: Sometimes. Um, so, all right. So now I'm kind of writing three different steam levels, right? So I'm writing the heartwarmings and, um, occasionally I will have to pull myself back and I'll go, oops, I can't do that in this book. Um, and that's even if it's just like, take for the book I'm writing right now, which is the second in my new Hawaii series that'll come out late next summer. Um, I have a heroine who just found her boyfriend cheating on her. Uh, all right. He was, they were just kissing it because it's heartwarming and there's no sex in heartwarming, but, uh, She encounters her uh, boyfriend on the beach kissing one of the bridesmaids in her sister's wedding. And uh, she just loses it and she grabs the first guy she sees on the beach and she kisses him. Spoiler alert, that's the hero. Um, (laughs) Shocker. I know. Um, But... I couldn't, the whole story begins with a kiss and yet it's a kiss I can't describe. There are only so, there's only so far I can go with that kiss. Uh, Whereas if I had been writing that book in a Harlequin romantic suspense, there would have been a hell of a lot excuse me, heck of a lot more description than it was in the heartwarming. So um, for me, I I feel more comfortable getting pulled back than I do having to push forward. Now that said, I do not like writing love scenes. I-I-I I probably am a psychological examination waiting to happen as far as why that is. But um, I don't know. I don't know whether I feel like it's intrusive or what, um, but I always, there are times I have to remind myself to pull a full love scene into a, into a romantic suspense, especially since in romantic suspense, they're dealing with very high pressure situations. There's adrenaline running and, you know, Hopefully, somebody's trying to kill them. So, that's not really the time you take a step back and say, Hey, you want to have some fun time? Uh, not really realistic. So, finding the balance between that is usually more difficult than actually writing the steamy part with Exposed, because I had that write whatever you want. However, it has to be written. I went full bore into those love scenes and I had one of my um, fellow authors read the book for me before I sent it in just to make sure I had the tone right. And she says, I can't believe you wrote that sex scene.
2: Oh my It's
1: so different than anything else. I mean, I was using words I've never used before in print because the filter was gone. I could literally just, and if there was something wrong with it, my editor was going to fix it. So um, I think probably... My hesitation has in writing different levels of heat has more to do with what line am I writing for, what's appropriate, what can I get away with, and what boundaries can I push. Um, and then also the my romantic suspense with Harlequin that comes out in February, which is the Di's Pi's Deadly Charade. Um, I literally forgot to put a love scene in the book. I oh had to go gosh. back and work <laughs> it in because I completely forgotten to do it because they were busy doing other things like trying to stay alive. You know. Uh, sex kind of takes a back seat at that point.
2: I want to know what the message from the editor is like, uh, Anna, there's no sex.
1: <laughs> well, here's here, but here was the great part because I went and I put a love scene into it and I wasn't particularly happy with it. And I let her know when I turned in the book. I said, I'm not sure that this works or what. And uh, she says, we'll take care of it. And I found out later that it would have been okay if there wasn't a love scene because apparently they're okay now without there being a full-on love scene in the romantic suspense line i don't know whether or not that's going to last and i don't know whether or not that's already ended um it's nice to know that's the case but that also helps keep me writing and then i'm like oh well it doesn't have to be one well then i'm gonna put one in um because that's just how my brain works so it's it depends on what i'm writing what line I'm writing for, what the expectations are for the reader, and what the qualifications are from the publisher, and then what I'm comfortable writing. Yeah. So I hope that answers your question.
2: Yeah, it does. It does. So, okay, I was just, I was like saying, yes, it does. And then I was also thinking of other questions. <laughs> 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 Sorry. That's okay. That's right. I just find it really fascinating okay so you're talking about reader expectations so does it ever feel for you kind of mechanical like I have to put this in there like like you said you turned in Mm. a whole book and realized I didn't even put this in there like at what point are you going with your gut and it's just like okay this needs to happen right now because this makes sense versus like oh I just wrote I just wrote a whole book and it's not there
1: if I've written the whole book and it's not there my gut tells me that it's not supposed to to be there. Um, okay. Uh which is why I let my editor know. You know, I finished the book. It wasn't there. I went back and I put it in. So if it doesn't work, let me know and we'll fix it in edits. Um it turns out that I had other scenes that had a higher intimacy than i remembered since i edit as i go i don't always read the entire book again before i turn it in so i at times i have forgotten what i put in the book ahead of time so um there were enough intimate moments between the two characters that um it would have been okay if i hadn't gone back and put in that love scene if that okay. makes sense um so I- Hopefully by now I've gotten myself into a routine. As long as I program my brain into the right line that I'm writing for, because there have been times I've mixed up my characters between a heartwarming and a romantic. Oh God, oh God and no. that, <laughs> that goes off the rails really
2: fast. So when you're doing a heartwarming and you go into that knowing there's going to be no steam. Yeah, you have to. I mean, you're you're gonna show intimacy intimacy in some way. Is right. that something that you're like cognizant of when you start the story? I mean, I. I don't yeah. know. I just because those moments are always so sweet and so impactful. Like they're really impactful, I think, in heartwarming when you get those handholds or, you know, brushing up the hands brush up against each other or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but is that
1: something that you're aware of? Like I have to show intimacies in like some kind of way? Absolutely. Yeah. Because you have to Because it's not enough that they're connecting on an emotional level for me. There has to be some kind of physical attraction between them. And you have to show it in some way that's inoffensive and realistic. Um, And I knew with this book that I'm finishing up this week, you know, her kissing him on page one, well, page four, um, is a risk because there's not a lot of that in a heartwarming. But hopefully I pulled it off in a way that um, it's, it's... It's fun and it's funny and it makes you wonder what's going to happen between these two characters next because they've already had the kiss that usually ends up at the end of the book. It's already happened in the beginning. So um, I think when we're writing low steam, it's really fun to play with those expectations and what we can get away with and how to twist things up and make them different. Um, You know, I, 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 I tend to move... Whatever level of intus- intimacy I can get to, I try to move it around in the books a little bit, just because it that way the books don't all sound like they're fault. Fo- fo- and maybe that's why sometimes that there's uh, the accusation that uh, romances is romances are formulaic, um, is because I think there is kind of a beat pattern to a romance novel. Um, so switching up those beats, I think, can help. Um, shift the expectations for the intimacy levels a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I love it. You, we were
2: chatting earlier, and you you mentioned heartwarming being kind of like Hallmark, right? Hallmark is known for the kisses yeah. at the end. I mean, they've they've given us some mid movie kisses lately, which has been nice. But I think I'm just so excited because I feel like, oh my gosh, Anna, you gave us a kiss on page four. Like, yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. <I'm a> rebel. <laughs> I know, and plus it in, it, it leads them into a, in a, into a fake dating relationship because she actually ends up hiring him as her fun coach because she has no idea how to just let loose and have fun. But in order to do that, he has to pose as her boyfriend because she doesn't want her family thinking that she's just a complete loser who doesn't know what she's doing. Oh, my
2: God. And this is why people need to be reading Heartwarming, okay? Because you get (laughs) stories like this in Heartwarming.
0: All playing
1: games.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just having flashbacks to uh, to our friend Amy Vestine's uh, Wyoming secret proposal, and that w- that book had honestly shocked me. And and so like they were like straight up making out at the beginning of the book. They get married while drunk, and like they're sharing a bed at some points in the book. I'm just like, Amy, how did you get away with this?
1: Right, clutching pearls. <laughs> That's a very good question. It's funny because um, I remember when I was reading it and I'm like, okay, seriously, how is she getting away with this? I can't write this in a heartwarming. My editor would come back at me and go, "Uh, no, we don't do that in heartwarming. (laughs) But I think it has to do with her voice. And the way that she pulls it off, because she doesn't do it in a way that's exploitive or offensive or raunchy or anything like that. Mm-hmm. She does it in a very, very sweet way. Um, and, you know, and that's one reason her books do as well as they do. She, she has a talent with doing that, that, that some of us just can't get away with.
2: It's November. It's NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. And we asked you, like, to put together... You know, whether it's frequently asked questions, advice, whatever it is. But before you get into it, can you talk about voice? Like, for anybody that's there's a lot of people that do NaNoWriMo every year. And I think Mm -hmm. voice is so important. And I was actually thinking about this earlier today. I'm like, what is my voice? Like, I'm so scared. Like, I have this military background. I feel like a lot of times when I'm talking, I feel like I'm doing an interview legitimately with somebody. (laughs) Like, how am I going to ever sound romantic? So, can you talk about voice? Is there any advice that you have? for figuring out your voice. Can you start there and then get into whatever else you have for us?
1: Okay. So voice, Oy. that was one of those like nebulous concepts that never made any sense to me um, until I took a workshop with an author named Terry McLaughlin. She used to write for uh, Supers. Um, I think she ventured out into mysteries. I'm not sure what she's writing right now, if she's still writing, but she gave a workshop on voice. And the way she explained it has always just stuck with me and it's always made the most sense. So voice is if all romance authors are in an orchestra and we're all playing the same piece of music, however you play your instrument to that piece of music is your voice. Your interpretation of that piece of music is your voice. So the stories that you feel strongly about, I think, or you're most connected to are the best places to showcase your voice does that make sense it does yeah 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 i always have this image of somebody playing a violin as opposed to somebody playing an oboe but they're still playing the same song they're just telling it in a different way that's voice
0: Okay. Okay. Well, when it comes to NaNo and aspiring authors, one of the biggest challenges is just getting your butt in the seat and getting to writing. What are some of the ways that you get your butt in the seat and you get to writing?
1: Um, Well, first of all, if I don't write, I don't get paid. So that's a big motivator. That'll do it. (laughs) That'll do it. Um, But for those people who are not yet published and are striving to be published, you need to ask yourself, how bad do you want it? Do you want it bad enough to spend two or three hours a day that you don't normally spend during NanoRimo to get that project finished? Do you want it bad enough to start setting a routine and getting those words on the page and learning your craft? Are you willing to invest the time that it takes to get you to that next step? Writing for me is the best gift I give myself every day, even though sometimes it seems like an impossible gift. There are days I just cannot bring myself to sit down in that chair. And it's not because I don't love writing. I do. But there's just something that the creativity isn't there, or I'm just not in the right mood, or I, you know, I just need a me day. Um, that does not happen the closer I get to deadline, but um, it, it comes down to the question of how bad do you want it? Are you playing at this? Is this just a hobby? Or is this something you really want to make your career and your livelihood and your job? Guess what? If that's what you want, you're going to have to work for it. So I always think back to what Nora Roberts always says. And she says, writing is her job. She sits down at nine. She gets up at five. That is her job to sit down and write. And uh, it's one reason I miss going to RWA conferences is because I would always go to, I was called it the church of Nora because she would hold a workshop and that question would always come up. And it was always my reminder that this is a job and I have to do the work in order to get the job done. So, um, it's a, it's a mindset and one that you'll probably fall in and out of a lot, but it's a mindset that you have to make if you're going to make a success out of what you want as a career.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I just, I have like three questions that just popped in my head. (laughs) Forgive me. Okay. I, I, I guess I'll start here. So first, and foremost, like you see on Twitter, all the pitches and stuff like that. And people come up with these incredible ideas. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have to the writer? Who's just like, I have a romance, small town girl, you know, the very basic of the basic, but I really believe in my story, but like, it may not be as cool sounding as this one that I just saw, like the comparison game, like what advice do you have to that? Stop doing it. St-
1: number one, get off Twitter. <laughs> Which I think today might be an easier piece of advice to give than it has been ever before. But um, I will f- fully acknowledge I I do this to myself all the time too, and I especially do it when they're doing like pitch wars and or pitch madness on Twitter because I can never concisely describe my book in however many characters Twitter allows. Um, comparing yourself to other writers is number one, the first step toward failure. And number two, it's not fair to you. And it's not fair to the other author. Whatever you're writing is not what anybody else is writing. You are writing something unique, something completely you. And chances are, it's a story that needs to be out there and it needs to be read by somebody. Um, comparing yourself to what somebody else has come up with is, um, it's 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 futile it doesn't do you any good and it does more damage than it does uh, positive results so um if you aren't going to quit twitter um maybe twist it or spin it and use it to make your story better in a pitch if you think it if it needs to be made better you know sometimes simpler is better and I often wonder when I see those really clever pitches or, you know, taglines or whatever, I'm like, how many of them have actually written the book? Yeah. Or is it just an idea? You don't know. Don't assume it's a finished product. Don't assume that this is going to be the next bestseller. There's no way of knowing that. Um, People are really, really good about coming up with ideas They're not necessarily great about executing them. Be the author who executes it. Be the author who finishes the book. And so what if it's a crap tagline? If you submit that book and the writing shows, then the writing shows and you've done your job. So putting everything reliant on uh, a tagline for a pitch war, uh, that is not going to sell or sink you. Your writing is what's going to sell you. Put your energy into that. If you come up with a better tagline down the line, great. I've written, I think mm, the book I'm finishing next week will be my 56th book that I've written. I can tell you for certain, none of my pitch lines have been good. Okay. <laughs> none. 50 fifty plus books later though, we're good. We're getting books. Yes. The one the one pitch line I have that I thought was really good is the book I couldn't sell. So take that for what it's worth and yeah. write the damn book.
2: Yeah. I mean, and there's, I mean, I, I hate to say basic because um, it's like, my heart and soul, but like there's a market for like the basic of the basics. Girl returns to small town. I mean, there's an entire network of movies that does that all the time. So
1: Very true. Yeah. And and maybe it's just a way for you to dig into it a little bit deeper and see what is special about your book that you can pull out into a tagline. Um, Give it a catchy title. There again, I do not do titles well at all. My editor will tell you that. I always have to send her a list and they rarely pick any of the ones I have come up with. Um, it's it's just, work to your strengths. Chances are your strengths are not a clever pitch line. And even if it is, I hope the book is as good as the pitch line. Because that's what the editors and agents are expecting. When your pitch line is that clever, they're really expecting a standout book. So work on the book, not the pitch line.
2: Okay. So this next one is kind of like, I guess like a three-parter. Like I want to hear you talk about the terrible middle that a lot of people experience, like that mm. middle of the book. But then also having a prologue or an epilogue, like how do you know when you <laughs> need to have one or the other or both of those?
1: Yeah. Um... So the sagging middle, uh, the sagging middle usually happens when you lose the when you lose the conflict. So you have to make sure that you have not resolved the big problem between your hero and your heroine, or your hero and your hero, or your heroine and your heroine uh, before the midway point of the book. If if you've done that, then you have nothing to work off of, and there's no reason for the readers to keep reading because it's already resolved. So um, if you hit the middle and you hit a dead end, and I will fully admit usually around the 40,000 word mark, which is where I was this morning. Um, my book comes to a dead stop. Um, I've had to learn how to push through it because I don't have time to push it, put it away for a couple of weeks and come back to it. <laughs> Books do on Monday. I don't have time. Uh, but um, usually it means you've lost the conflict or you've lost the plot, one or the other. I tend to go back to conflict because it's easier to find where you've dropped the conflict than it is to follow all of the different plot threads, hopefully, that you've got going in there. So I would say take a look at your conflict if if the middle is sagging too much and make sure that it's still strong enough to carry through to the rest of the story. Okay. Okay. Um, as far as a prologue and an epilogue... Um, I love epilogues. Epilogues are like usually my favorite part of the book. Um, And I, I've written quite a few of them just because I love the wrap up idea. I love to see where these characters are a couple of months down the line or a couple of years down the line. um, Or if they're in the delivery room having a little baby or, you know, or they go to the SPCA and grab a dog together or whatever. I love an epilogue because it shows me that the characters beyond the happily ever after of the last page are going to be okay, right? You know that okay. it's actually. The last. So that's why I love epilogues. I also like to catch up with all different kinds of characters and that's the way to do that. Um, so um, as far as prologues, it's hit or miss with me. I've written very few prologues. I think Exposed has one because it needed one. Um, I had to set up this story in a way that set the reader's expectations that this was not a romance that it was a thriller first and a romance second. Um, It is still very much a romance, but the way that the book starts sets the tone for how the rest of the series is going to go. And I had to be really careful with how I began it. So it needed a prologue. It had to take place about eight years before the story actually begins. Um, What happens in that prologue carries through. It will carry through to the absolute end of the book and it will bookend, uh, end of the series. Um, So, I think prologues are great when they're useful and when they're needed by the story. If you can pull the prologue out and it doesn't affect anything else that happens in the rest of the book, you probably don't need it.
2: You probably don't need it.
1: Uh, Probably don't need it. Um, And a lot of times a prologue can actually be a chapter one. This happened actually to me with the last Blackwell book, Wyoming Promise. Uh, My original draft Um, what happens in chapter one was originally a prologue. And then it was going to jump ahead chapter one to like three or four weeks later. And it was Melinda who kept pushing back saying it shouldn't be a prologue, it should not be a prologue. And I'm like, it needs to be a prologue. And then my editor came back and said, this can't be a prologue. This is chapter one. So um prologues can be really tricky. I don't think epilogues are as tricky as prologues. Uh prologues take a little bit more thought and examination as to whether or not it's absolutely needed. And if your all your prologue is is backstory, cut it, take it out. Um the way I opened exposed the character you're seeing in that moment is not in the rest of the book, but it's pivotal to establishing what's going to happen in the rest of the book. So um, that was why I decided it was needed. And it was, it was a really difficult decision because I've always been, I can't stand prologues. I can't tell you how many times I've started a book. It starts with a prologue and I just skipped a chapter one because I don't want to read it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Most
1: people don't do it right. Most most people, I'm like, this is the most boring. It's all telling. Prologues tend to be telling and you always want to show when you can. So I actually have I have three little bits that I that I came up with. Okay. And um, with the disclaimer that the first time I was on your show with Sarah, I said, I am never going to be the author who will give you advice as far as how to write. So I'm still not going to be that person who will tell you how to write. But I will say, as people especially are moving through NaNoWriMo, this month is for getting the words on the page. It is not for editing.
2: Okay. Yeah. You
1: take November and you get the words on the page. The words are going to suck. You're going to wonder what the heck you're vomiting out. Just get them on the page. Uh, Your book, if you're writing romance, should be all about the conflict. It is about what is keeping your hero and your heroine or your hero and your hero or your heroine and your heroine uh, apart. Mm -hmm. That is what a romance is about. It is about what is stopping these two people from being happily ever after. If you drop that, or if you don't even have it to begin with, that's the ride that your readers, whether they realize it or not, are wanting to go on. And if you drop that conflict and you lose that conflict and it's not there anymore, they're going to stop reading or they're going to lose interest or worse, they're going to forget they ever read your book. You don't want to write a forgettable book. Keeping a hold of that conflict is going to be one of the ways you can do to make sure that you write a book that goes on their keeper shelf. And I think that's pretty much the goal of most authors um the let's see what was my other um so yeah my second piece of advice was to write don't edit um i don't care how tempting it is do not waste the time that you have set aside for this editing now you start that on december 1st or january 1st if you want to get through the holidays first um no editing move forward, get the words on the page, words get the story the out. Words yeah. on the page. That is the goal of NaNoWriMo. It is not edits on the page. It's not red marks on the page. It is words on the page. Get them out. Um, and my last bit of advice is because I saw a tweet last week that nearly just blew my head off my shoulders is, and it was from an editor who was was either an, oh shoot, wasn't an editor or publisher or agent might've been an agent who said she was dreading December because they were going to get drowned in submissions from people who had just finished NaNoWriMo. And the kicker was she knew hardly any of them were going to be edited. They just sent in what they finished. Now I know all my romance people out there are too smart to know to do this, but once you get to the end of your project this month, when you get to that word count, when you write the end to the story, do not, I don't care how tempted you are, do not send it to anybody. You're going to set it aside for two to three weeks. You're going to forget about it. You're going to read, you're going to refill your creative well, and then you're going to go back and you're going to edit the crap out of it because it's going to need it. Yes. All the genius that you thought you had in your head during NaNoWriMo, you will wonder where it was because it's going to to be work, to get it right. So set it aside, then go in and edit it. And then when you think you've got it right, find yourself a critique partner or somebody who reads for you, even another reader, you've got somebody in your life who'd be willing to read it and be kind and um, make sure that is it is in submissionable state. And then you can start writing your query letters and submitting it if that's what your goal is. This is also your plan of action if you're self-publishing it, <laughs>
2: but yeah, pretty yeah. much
1: everybody knows you don't self-publish a first draft. What you're writing in NanoRimo is a first draft. You never send out that first draft. Never, 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 never. It should be edited to within an inch of its life before you send <laughs> that in. You only got one chance at making a first impression with some editors and some agents. You don't want to be the one they remember because you didn't take the time to edit and give them your best work. They want to judge your best work, not your fastest work, not your most clever work, your best work. And this goes if you're submitting to independent editors who are developmentally developing, who are editing for you, Mm -hmm. um, or even proofreaders. Or you're not hiring people to fix your work. You're hiring people to tweak your work. They yeah. don't want to be rewriting your work. They're not being paid enough to rewrite your work. Your job is to rewrite your work. So let's run through this again. NanoRimo is words on the page.
2: Words on the page.
1: Words on the page. No editing allowed. If if anybody listening to this wants me on their shoulder, I will set up a recording you can download. No editing during Nanorimo, okay? I'm your little Yoda on your shoulder. No editing. Once you get through, you get the words on the page. you get to whatever your goal is, your fifty thousand. I think fifty thousand is what Nanorimo yeah, is. I 50, haven't. 000. I haven't. I haven't done it. I tend to do it every month, so I don't tend to do it in November. Um get your 50,000 or whatever your word count is, finish the project, set the project aside for 2 to 3 weeks. Read, read and refill your well so that you're ready to get back into to get into editing as soon as those 2 to 3 weeks are over and then dig in and make it better. And then you can send it out and make editors and p- agent's lives a little bit easier by having them read your absolute best work. Make them want to say, make them have to look for a reason to say no. If you send in a first draft, they're not going to get through that first paragraph before you're on the reject pile. So make it impossible for them to turn your work off. Make them want to say yes. And you can do that by turning in your best work. (laughs) What advice do you have to ensuring
2: your conflict doesn't suck? that you're not going to hit that, that saggy middle? How do you ensure you have a... What steps do you need to take ahead of time? Is it characters? What is it to ensure you have a strong conflict that is going to keep people reading? Because I mean, sp- speaking specifically romance, and you're a writer, so you know, you've. E- I think you even said it in the, while we've been chatting, that's what keeps people reading the book. That's what keeps us turning the pages. That's what keeps us like rooting for these characters or whatever. How do you, what steps do you take ahead of time to ensure you have a good conflict?
1: So um, defining conflict is probably the first step to that. And Mary Buckham taught me in way that i finally understood it that conflict is a clash of belief systems now this is not political belief systems religious belief systems it's not the kind of belief system i'm talking about i'm talking about the core way somebody lives their life and how the profession that they've chosen or um you know whether or not uh there is i'm trying to think of some all i can do is go back to my own books where where i've purposely chosen characters that are coming from a place that are diametrically opposed. So um, in Exposed, for instance, I have a heroine who's a photographer. She works in Hollywood. She works as a part-time paparazzi, and she has seen some really ugly ugly things on the streets of Hollywood, uh, especially in relation to um, the homeless population and uh, outcasts of society and how she has witnessed the police treating these people. She has such a level of distrust with the police that the only kind of hero I could pair her off with is a cop. Right. Right. Because, because that is going to take a change of perspective on her part to be able to fall in love with the hero. Right. He has conflict, he has a couple of, my hero in this is named Quinn Burton, and he has some conflict in that he's instantly attracted to her, but he also knows she's going to be a serious handful and she's putting herself into this investigation no matter what. So she's endangering him being able to do his job. That's a conflict. Uh, Her The things that she's discovered puts somebody he cares about at risk because it could reveal an error was made that led to a severe miscarriage of justice. So he feels protective over this other person while he still feels as if he needs to protect the heroine who obviously won't want his protection. So I've got three levels of conflict there that I can pull in at any time that will keep the story moving ahead. So really that's what you want to go for is, is a kind of conflict that can continue to deepen and you can find different layers too. And if you're still not sure if it's strong enough, ask yourself this one question, and this will save you on conflict every time. Can the problems that exist between the hero and the heroine be solved with a conversation?
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: If they can talk it out, that's not conflict. That's a problem. And for people my age, And maybe a little people my age and older, I call it the Threes company scenario because most of the problems that cropped up on the TV show, Threes company all could have been solved if they just talked to each other. Yeah. So, and that's, yeah. So if your characters can have a conversation and solve the problem that you've created for them, it's a problem. It's not conflict. But if it's something that one or the other can cement themselves in and they're not going to budge that's conflict because each character is going to have to come to the other per- person's train of thought, right? They're if they don't change their minds, they're at least going to have to understand where the other person is coming from. So, in exposed one of the things that Riley, my heroine has to come to terms with is that not all cops are the same. It's yeah. not black and white. You know, all cops are different. They're all coming from a different situation and they're all going to handle things differently um so he, that's what he needs to show her he can't convince her with a conversation
2: Right, right. Because
1: chances are she's heard it before from somebody else. She's actually got to witness that. And that's why you throw them together. So she's witnessing him doing his job and she sees that he and the other cops that he works with are actually really trying to help the situation and trying to help people the way that she's always been top cops are supposed to act, but haven't necessarily, at least in her personal uh, viewpoint. So- for me the question of conflict always comes down to can it be solved with a conversation? If it is it's not conflict it's a problem. It's a problem. So dig deeper. And if you okay. keep going deeper and deeper and deeper chances are you'll find a kind of conflict that helps. Uh you've got the rancher trying to save his ranch and the female banker who's been assigned to foreclose. That's conflict.
2: That's conflict.
1: Um, that's conflict. You have um a woman who's lost her best friend to a drug overdose and she's determined she's not going to risk her heart over anybody else. So she falls in love with a race car driver who risks his life all the time. That's conflict. Um, you have two political opponents. Uh, in I'm going through, I'm looking at my books on my bookshelf, trying to remember what my conflicts are. <laughs> so you have two <laughs> political opponents who both want what's best for their small town. You've got a legacy uh, mayor and a new arrival in town, both who think they know what's right for their community, that's conflict.
2: That's conflict. Um,
1: but none of those things can be solved with a conversation. It has to be through experience and through getting to know the person and through getting getting to see their lives New eyes, yeah, that's what'll solve the conflict, and that shouldn't happen until the you know, toward the end of the book, if not, you know, at least the last quarter of the book. Uh, so is that conflict? So, if you're still having trouble trying to figure out exactly what kind of conflicts to use, um, Becca Puglusi and Angela Ackerman have put out the conflicts thesaurus. Um, I believe volume two is on its way soon. I have it on pre-order. I should look to see where that is. Um, but they've compiled, it's essentially a dictionary of different conflict situations that you can pull from as far as, um, what the core beliefs are that people would clash over. And that's really what conflict is all about. Uh, again, it's not political or religious or any of those, uh, you know, hot button issues. It's really about the type of person that they are at the moment and the type of person they have to become at the end in order to earn that happily ever after. And overcoming the conflict is their earning the happily ever after. So keep it front and center.
2: I need to get that one because I have their emotional wounds one. And oh, man, like they go deep. They give you a scenario. They give you flaws. And I mean responses, you know, to different situations It's incredible. I didn't even think about looking into the conflict one. So I'm going to have to look into that one. Well,
1: and you know what, actually the emotional wound thesaurus is auks- is a very good way to find conflict sources because a person who has gone through particular traumas um, is going to be more reticent to exposing themselves to anything emotional, right? So that's a conflict. They're not willing to open themselves up, but they're faced with somebody who makes them want to. So they have to make that change. So the emotional wound thesaurus is another one that can really, really be helpful as far as identifying conflicts to use for your characters. And I mean, just when you
2: were going through the bookshelves, it's like when we describe books to people, we're usually describing the conflict. (laughs) Like that's what you remember about the books. It is.
1: Yeah. It's the conflicts. and, And for series romance, it's tropes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay.
2: Plug exposed again. When is it coming out? Where <laughs> can everybody get it? Tell us all the details and where can we all keep up with you online?
1: Well, you can uh, keep up on me, w- keep up with me on www.authorannastuart.com. All my social media links are there. All my, I've got a brand new website. It's absolutely gorgeous. Thank you, WriterSpace. space. Um, so everything you need to know about my books is right there. Exposed releases on November 15th, uh, special priced for pre-order at 2 dollars It will stay that way, I think, for a couple days after release. I hope, at least. <laughs> uh, 9 dollars for the paperback. It's the first of five books, Circle of the Red Lily, uh, Women's Murder Club meets LA Confidential. Super fun, super sexy. Heroin is super sassy and the heroine, the hero Quinn is like, oh my God, to die for. I absolutely adore him. I can't wait to see what happens with him in book two. <laughs> um, so yeah, that'll, that'll be out on the 15th. And the second book, which I'm not able to share the title with yet, all my books are titled. This is the first time all of the books in the series have been titled ahead of time, uh, will be out next July. So hopefully you won't have to wait too long to have the rest of the series. Okay,
2: so we're going to have to like, I mean, we'll obviously probably talk before the series is over because you're (laughs) you and we always are brainstorming reasons we need to talk to you. But like, we're going to have to talk at the end of the series for
1: sure.
2: (laughs) We have (laughs) to wrap up this series when it's over. We have to.
1: Yeah, and it's it's hard. It's hard to wait because I'm like, book five, I know what's going to happen in book five. And I know the characters in book five. And I like, I can't wait to write that book. Yay. But I have to
2: write three more before.
1: Yeah, you got to write the other three. So
2: <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your time with us. We're always just so excited to talk to you. And thank you for all of the wonderful advice. i just I was inspired. I know Aaron was inspired. And I hope this somebody that's listening. I mean, I hope you get something out of this because it was just incredible. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us.
1: It's my pleasure and happy writing everybody for NaNoWriMo. Get those words on the page.